You could divide Isaiah into three parts um, by the way uh, Isaiah focuses and writes. You can see these are three different sections. Now, Bible critics like to say that this is proof that there really isn't just one author, Isaiah. This is written over the course of hundreds of years or multiple authors. And the real reason the critics will say this is they want to discount the prophetic or the predictive elements in the book. For instance, in chapter 40 and forward, there is a prediction of Babylon taking Judah captive. Yet it doesn't happen until after Isaiah dies. He's predicting it will happen. And so the critic looks and says, there's no way that he could have predicted this. And look at the way it's written differently, this section, compared to the first 39 chapters. Clearly this is a different author, and he's just writing about what he saw. Uh, the problem is that that's a modern invention to deal with an anti-supernatural bias that the critics have. Because Isaiah writes over 50 years. He begins writing when he's a young man. In fact, if you've been at this church as long as I've been here, 19 years, you remember me uh, back when I was 26 preaching. And then uh, now I'm about where Isaiah was when he wrote chapter 39. I'm 44. 20 years, almost 19 years later. Um, And Isaiah, when he gets to chapter 40... He's an old man by this point, 20 years past even where he was at this point. So the span of his ministry is different. You know I'm not the same person. I don't speak exactly the same way. Uh, The style's different. The tone might be different. The topic's different. It's easy to see why when you have a book that just highlights the overall prophetic ministry of a man who ministered 50 years, that it's going to look different based on when he's writing it. Uh, That's an easy way to understand how these differences appear in style. But also recognize Jesus, our Lord, identifies one author, Isaiah, and that's all we need to know. He recognizes one author, Isaiah, as he quotes him throughout his ministry and throughout the New Testament. Paul does the same. And interestingly, when we discovered, we, not me, but people, uh, discovered the scrolls of Isaiah in the Qumran caves some time ago, almost 75 years ago, they were all in one unit. There was no division between them. And these are ancient texts written around the time of Christ and even before the time of Christ. It's always been understood to be one author. It's only a later convention that would try to insist differently. I say that as preface because you might in college or among people that you know hear that kind of idea. There were three Isaiahs and you can explain why that's not the case. And when we come to chapter 40, this difference in tone is because the Assyrian crisis has been averted. Hezekiah led faithfully for some time, but he wavered at the end of his life, and it became clear by God's revelation to Isaiah that Judah also would fall into exile, just like the northern kingdom did. The difference is Judah would not lose their identity. They would still be identified as the people of God. God would keep his promise to bring the Messiah from Judah, but Judah would undergo the disciplining hand of God. And so Isaiah, seeing this will come, is given this revelation to bring comfort to the people of God, especially when they are under that captivity, when it comes. But it takes on a much longer-term value for all the people of God of all time. You might say 1 through 39, those chapters were about God's just judgment and sure fairness about sin. Now you have, from chapter 40 to 55... 
his great comfort that he provides, even though we're sinners. In the midst of our sin, he provides for deliverance from sin and real comfort. Not just empty words or empty actions, but real comfort, the very thing that we all want so badly. George Barna, when he did one of his surveys, uh, when asked uh, all these religious questions, the one question that people would respond with is the most popular question. Why is it that there is so much sin and suffering? And how can we have true comfort? And we have the answer for us here given to us in the Gospel of Isaiah. The whole chapter speaks to this, but we'll take it in sections. Verses 1 through 11 first. Please hear as I read God's holy word. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, in the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice cry, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all is beauty. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we have opened uh, truly one of the most glorious of all chapters in Scripture. And even though you have secured our eternity through the perfect work of your Son, and we confess this, we believe this, we are easily overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. When we read comfort in the first verse, we know how much we need this. This week was a particularly heavy week with many difficult challenges The heaviness we felt this week reminds us of what is messed up about our sinful condition. Thank you for your gospel of grace, which gives us real comfort because of the actual sacrifice of Christ and the actual resurrection of our Savior. This is not just an empty, sentimental word of comfort, but a real one. And this is what we need, and we come to you seeking it again, and we thank you for your scripture. Send your spirit to attend the preaching of your word this day. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Admittedly, the heaviness of this week uh, played into my thinking as I was preparing this sermon. And obviously, you all heard about the tragedy of young Caleb Schwab, at least from a, uh, every human perspective you can imagine, as parents and friends, how tragic this is. I heard Sunday afternoon, 
and it's, it's, it's the whole week has just had a cloud thinking about just the, the pain of the family and the community. Uh, this was a very integrated family here at the church and among many of you as friends in sports. I mean, many of you people knew them very well. I remember distinctly of all the children, you know, there are certain ones you remember, and they had three boys in our chapel who would come here uh, every month, and one of my children's in the class of the youngest one. And so everybody just knows this family. And so all of us as parents and friends feel this pain, this heaviness, in, in the wrongness of it as it hits us about sin and death and what's real and the misery that comes from it. But there are several other things that just happened this week, at least for me, and maybe you've had those, these kind of weeks. Heaviness in, in marriages and in some of the marriages in the church, um, heaviness in relationships, health issues out of the control of people, uh, difficulties, people struggling. It just, there's a weight of what sin does that impacts us. And I don't mean that someone's sick because they're sinful. I'm saying they're sick because there's sin. And we're all broken down, and there's a fallenness. And even today, the date itself, this is my dad's birthday today, and it's difficult. I'm not to the point now where I think of the birthday, his birthday and have happy thoughts yet. It's not there. This is the day a year ago that Tammy Schumann went to be with the Lord. So there's a heaviness that comes about us. We all know when we read comfort. I don't know if it's like this for you, but when you open it up this morning, maybe it's the first time you saw the text. How did it hit you? Did you yes, that's what I need. That's what we need. That's what the world wants is comfort. And they will seek for it in all manner. But there is only one place. And I'm not just trying to be some uh, radical, exclusivistic fundy saying to you, there's only one way for comfort. I'm just saying there's only one way. There's only one source for comfort. It's the truth. I mean, it's, it's, that's where we, everything else is emptiness. It doesn't, it doesn't salve anything. It's so... In the terrible time of forecast, Isaiah tells the people what they can hold on to when it's going tough, when it's going rough. And this is a universal word that spans the generations. It's really Christianity in a nutshell re- being displayed here, beginning in these 11 verses. It goes through the whole chapter. We'll see. Christianity is about the saving grace of God in Christ, which provides for the only real comfort that we can have for living in this fallen world. I love what John Calvin says when he's commenting on this chapter. As he opens his comments, he says, What will afterwards follow will relate to the future church. He's saying Isaiah's writing to the future church. The revival of which was effected long after his death, Isaiah's. For he will next lay down a perpetual doctrine which must not be limited to a single period. It's timeless what he's going to say here. It's predictive, and we'll see it, but we know the prediction happens. It's fulfilled. So that gives us even more encouragement about the God who is our God. So when he promises something for the future, he's already shown he is faithful. And so that gives real comfort. It's got substance. It's got a track record. We can hang on to it. Everything else fades. It's just sentiment. It's just something to divert our minds. It's not real. We need comfort in this fallen world And that's why the text begins like it does. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. There's a change now from chapter 39 where he was speaking this judgment that had come to the north and uh, the pains of the sins of the south now. Something happens now over these years between Hezekiah's death and chapter 40 when Isaiah, or we have resumed for us Isaiah's prophecy. He's older now, and he's looking ahead, and he sees what's inevitable, that Judah will fall into God's discipline. And they will need comfort 
when the oppression of another nation comes upon them. And he will provide it in the words that he speaks. You know, needing this comfort in the fallen world isn't just about the sin that's out there. We all feel it. It's heavy. It's present. It brings misery. It brings death. It brings sickness. It brings oppression, injustice, hate, immorality. You name it. It comes from sin. It's ultimately sin. And we battle it personally. Uh, We are restless with our own sin. Even as believers who've been renewed, we know that there's that struggle with the old Adam in us, if you will, instead of the new one, Christ. And we struggle. We identify too often with, with Adam instead of Jesus. And, and we struggle in our sins. And you can imagine, as Paul is saying this out loud in Romans chapter 7, uh, you, how, how universal his sentiment would be, if we were honest. He said, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. That's the Apostle Paul speaking. We're in a toilsome battle with sin. It's like a war. And that's really what it is ultimately. There's a war going on between us and God before we come to faith. He gives us faith in Christ so we have peace with him and the wall of enmity is taken down. But it's amazing how quickly we we still struggle against God's law, against God's morals, against what God tells us. And so this word speaks widely. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. How can it be ended? That her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. More than enough to pay for all of her sins. Comfort. Comfort, the word itself means here to bring ease where there is irritation, where there's unrest. Get comfortable, the nurse will say to the person in the hospital, or how can we get you comfortable? And they'll move the bed a certain way, put pillows a certain way, give them medicine, give them sheets. Be comfortable because they're, they're not resting. By comfort, the call is to console those who need consoling. By comfort, the charge is to bring cheer where there's mourning and sadness. By comfort here, the command is to deliver assurance or reassurance that God is their Savior where there may be insecurity, doubt, anxiety. That's what is being spoken to the people of God. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Then it says, speak tenderly to them. Now you can imagine that there has been a long history of terrible duress for, the, for those in Judah. They have recognized their national sin. They know their personal contributions to it. They see the past. They know what's happening in the future. And to a future generation reading this, in exile, they'll draw strength from the fact that, yes, we're under great and heavy burden, but God is our comfort. So speak tenderly. They can only take so much, Isaiah. That's what God's saying. They can only take so much. Don't raise your voice at them with this. Give them this message. Speak to the heart is what it literally says in the Hebrew. Speak tenderly. Have you ever met somebody who has suffered with post-traumatic stress disorder? This can happen for anyone who witnesses something very traumatic or is part of something very traumatic. It can, it can so impact a person that they have a physical response later and something like loud noises or uh, surprise uh, events or actions can really set them off. And I know this from a friend who was married uh, to a man who was or served several tours of duty uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And thought, he thought he was fine, but when he came back, he had the hardest time uh, assimilating. I mean, even the TV on too loud with certain loud noises really triggered him. And it was terribly difficult for them for a whole 
16 to 18 months after of just constant struggle with volume and noise and just could not handle it because of what he'd been through. There's a sense in which speak tenderly means that these people have the full weight of their sins. They know it. You don't have to shout it to them. Speak tenderly. You'll shout some things. Later, this passage will tell us to cry something. But here, speak tenderly. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. So speak to her in a way that is calming, but boldly let her know that the warfare is over. The warfare is over. Unrest, the striving, the anxiety, the duress, the trauma. How? Well, it says her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The weight and the guilt and the shame of all the sin that got them where they were. There they are in Babylon, exiled, no longer identified as the people of God the same way they were before. No temple to speak of. Their priesthood was in exile with them. Nothing really identifying about them. All they had were the promises of God. And here God says to them something very important. Your sins are pardoned. And God will provide for all of those sins. Not just a little bit, double for all of those sins. There's a calming that comes from knowing that the very thing that causes us to discomfort is settled by God. The sin that so makes us miserable, that brings all that's bad, God takes care of that in the person of Christ who we will send. We know this looking back, so we have this celebration or this celebratory tone when I speak of this. But this would be something they'd have to look forward to, but the promises of God are sure and they know it. Real comfort starts with the removal of the guilt for our sin, and that's what God promises to bring them, what he has brought us. No real comfort can come until we understand what has made this whole world uncomfortable. People strive so hard to find comfort or to answer tragedies and difficulties, but there will only ever be one place that brings sense to it. That's the throne of God, his mercy and his grace, provided completely for in Christ, That's where we will find comfort. I don't mean extreme happiness or that we'll forget the toil, but we'll find actual rest in our Father and Jesus who he sent to complete this work, this substantive work, this real work. God is the source of real comfort is what is played out in verses 3 through 5. Notice, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So he's just said that he was going to pardon their sins, or their sins are pardoned. Well, well, how would this be? These are just empty words without something to actually provide for it. God is the source of this real comfort. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So he's going to say, he's going to explain how it will be done. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. God is going to send someone. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The even ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. In other words, all the places that you might be able to hide something or you might be able to, or something might be out of your sight, it would be all level and it could all be seen. And as God visits with his messenger, all would be exposed. No one can escape. And clarity about the servant or the messenger who he would send, whom he would send. Verse five, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Now, he won't speak of the glory of himself apart from himself. So there's a revelation here that God himself will visit. So he will take care of our sins and he will visit to see it be so. 
And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God, in his unalterable word and promise, says he will visit. This is the source of real comfort. I hope you see. There can't be any other real comfort. It's all just words otherwise. It's empty. And people, they'll try to find all sorts of things to bring themselves comfort. Really what they're looking for is distraction or diversion to take away the feelings they have about the heaviness of sin in general and something in particular. Think of the ways in which people will do this. Some will strive after human relationships, who they know they think will help them be important, and then if they think of themselves as important, uh, they won't think of the troubles and the toils. Some people will run relationship to relationship trying to find some ease or comfort in whatever it's gnawing at them. People will try to find comfort in substance. Uh, they'll drink... They'll drink in order to forget, take drugs in order to kind of check out so they don't have to deal with whatever it is that is besetting them. Some people will just immerse themselves in their jobs and try to gain a prestige to their jobs where people you know, think of them as important. And if people think I'm important, then maybe I'll feel better about myself and bring comfort to this weight I feel that I can't explain. Or maybe just work so many hours that you don't have time to think about the problems of life or the challenges of life. Some people will try to get as much stuff as they can to keep themselves occupied with toys and things to do and things to play with, things to show off, focus on those things. It kills time, takes our mind off of the discomfort we feel in our soul. Some people will overuse entertainment for the same reason. They'll just play nonstop video games to check out. Uh, they'll watch sports. They'll have like, you know, three screens with three different games going on at any given time, all the time. They'll watch TV series after TV series, binge on one series and then next to the other one, movies after movies, uh, whatever it may be, to take our mind off of what's happening in life. People search for comfort all over the place. These things I've mentioned, we all relate with. We know the world around us tries to keep themselves uh, buried in these things. That's why when a tragedy occurs, it causes everyone to stop these things, and we're overwhelmed because we have not thought of where real comfort comes from. Now, I hope that's not true for believers, but you see it all over the world, and you feel for it. You ache for it. Some people even try to find comfort in false religious systems, ones that say, if you do these things, God will bless you. If you do these things, God will love you more. If you do these things, you'll be right with God. And they strive, and they strive, and they do religious rites and rituals, and they look very religious, but they don't find comfort. They may provide temporal diversions. These things may keep us occupied in our minds off the heaviness of life. And to be sure, people live their lives and they die striving to find comfort with these things. But God says for Isaiah to give the people a message of comfort, and then he shows how he will do it. Verse 3, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He's going to make all things uh, level so that he comes and he visits and he sees and he judges. Interestingly, Isaiah makes this prophecy 300 years later, the prophet Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament era, he says something very similar. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. You see, as each book of the Bible unfolds over the course of history, it reveals a little more than the last one in many cases. And it keeps progressing in the revelation or the revealing that God gives until the time of Malachi when you get even better picture of what Isaiah was talking about. He's going to send a messenger. We know God himself is going to visit. It said it in Isaiah. Now Malachi says there will be one who will make this way plain and clear. Then we get 
300 years further down the line when Matthew is writing his gospel, telling what happened. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. I love it when the Bible writers do this. There's no guesswork here. The prophecy in Isaiah, 700 years before, was fulfilled in John the Baptist who came and said, the, vo- and, and the prophet Isaiah saying, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And we know that John, Baptist, John the Baptist was there to reveal Jesus, to pave the way for Jesus and then bow out because he was not the one. Jesus was the one. He's the fulfillment of all that had been forecasted. He is the substance of our comfort. He and his work accomplished for us. This is why it's a real comfort, because it's a real person who did a real act to save us, and he lives forevermore. And this is all pictured many years before it's fulfilled, and then it is fulfilled in Jesus himself. This is why John, the gospel writer, says so beautifully about Jesus. So we know it's Jesus spoken of in Isaiah. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John says. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The coming of Jesus as a man confirms God's saving plan and gives us substantial comfort. Verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, What shall I cry? Now, this is a very uh, interesting text as we see. It seems as though Isaiah responds, what shall I cry? And then has a commentary that's his own before we receive the answer from God that comes a little bit later in verse 9. So imagine, the voice says, cry. And the prophet says, what what shall I say? What, What do you want me to say? And then... He pauses to make a commentary that's important for us. He says back to God, as it were, All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. You know, despite its power, despite how popular and powerful it can seem at a moment, all flesh, mankind, it's like grass, he says. It's almost like he's saying, Remember, God, I'm talking to people here, and they're like grass. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. So what shall I cry? Is he saying to God, be careful with what I say because people are are very, very fragile? Or is he saying there's a comparison to be made here between what you say, O God, and what man says? And man's saying things that opposes you right now. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. What we have is testimony to the indestructible nature of the Word of God. And this indestructible Word that God gives us provides real comfort. The grass withers, the flower fades, the Word of our God will stand forever. I want you to think about this very carefully. God's Word is the infallible witness to His work. His work is what gives us substance to our comfort. You follow? Christ comes and provides for us His sacrifice And he rises again, is seated at the right hand of the Father. He rules from that place. That's what happened. That's what's happening. And the word bears testimony to that substance. So God's word is the infallible witness to the work. This is why it's real comfort when we read what we read in Scripture. It's not Ralph Emerson Waldo who's writing here. This is God writing through prophets. 
And so it has substance. It's real. God provides the substance for our comfort in sending Jesus. God provides the testimony of that comfort by giving us his indestructible word. No empty promises or hopeful mantras, just God's indestructible word. And the nature of grass and flowers is so illustrative. Think about what it, it's like. The spring, the grass is brown, it looks dead, but then it comes to life as it gets warmer and the water comes and we fertilize it or we do whatever we do to it and it just gets lush and green and thick. It's like a carpet. And it just looks like it's been there forever. It looks like it'll be there forever. It's just, pop, it's just it takes your eye to it. You see the green. And that's what men are like. That's what people are like. They have moments on the earth where it seems like they're substantial, like they're important, like they've got something to say. And it goes to their head. They feel they've got power. They feel like, who cares what this testimony of your ancient God says? We think right now, by consensus, culturally, this is what's true. And people are like, wow, man, everybody seems to think this. This is powerful. There's a lot of you. It's bright. Your attributes are bright, and that's what's compared to a flower. But see, what is true is, If it's not God's word, it's destructible, and it will be destroyed. That's why the comparison is made. The grass withers. Man, in his wisdom, withers. The flower had the attributes of his so-called wisdom. It fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is God's indestructible word that provides the real comfort we so need all the time, but especially in difficult times. So if we're granted this word of encouragement, which will be expounded upon in the later part of chapter 40, this is really just an intro, the first 11 verses, to all the message of comfort that will come from Isaiah. What do we do if we have this, this testimony to the substantial comfort, the real comfort we have? What will we do with this? If you see the world crying like you see the world crying, on a regular basis with its suffering and its pain and its struggle. And you've been given clarity about where real comfort comes from. What should you do? What should I do? What should we do? That's what we have in verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald or trumpeter of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. Don't be shy. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. I mean, why should you fear? You have what the true comfort is. And if they kill you for it, you still have real comfort. They do not. I mean, that's worst case scenario, right? Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold, your God tell the world where real comfort comes from. The passage that prompted John Wesley work to write the Christmas hymn, Go Tell It on the Mountain, is right here. Go on up to a high mountain, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. The prophet is looking ahead to the advent of Messiah, Messiah's coming. He's giving a general picture of what the Messiah would accomplish. Now, I want you to remember something about the prophet's perspective. When Isaiah's writing, think about it from his perspective. He's looking ahead to God sending a Messiah. Now, in God's wisdom, what he reveals to Isaiah, uh, the perspective will be limited compared to what we learn as revelation unfolds or progresses. So there's Isaiah, 
with a picture that's needed for the people who are struggling of Messiah to come. Now, he sees Messiah coming in all the works of Messiah, probably in just one big act. It's hard to see the prophet understanding how long the actions would take place. That's God's plan. And God's not limited by time like we are, so it doesn't even matter to God in a sense. So Isaiah is just speaking of what Messiah would do when he comes. All true. Messiah will come, the glory of God himself, God himself, the anointed one, and he will pay for our sins. Messiah will bring his kingdom. The Messiah will bring his judgment. The Messiah will tend his flock like a shepherd, as it says here. He will set things right and straight. But what Isaiah doesn't know is how it would unfold or how long it would take. Jesus came just as God promised. Jesus brought God's glory as he promised. We beheld him, the glory glory of God. Yet the first part of his coming was to pay for the iniquity of our sin, to provide that pardon, if you will. And that's the, the purpose of his initial coming, is to be the sacrifice for us. Now, it never ends there. He brings his kingdom with him for sure, as he then sends his spirit when he ascends. And he sits at the right hand of the Father, and from there he makes the nations a footstool. So he's continuing to expand his kingdom. No matter what it looks like on the outside, he's growing people as he draws, drawing his kingdom as he draws people to himself, even in the midst of these hardships. And so he's working, but this kingdom is still being built. We live in between these tensions, uh, his first coming and his final coming. And Isaiah just sees it in one big picture. We know because when Jesus comes, we have witnessed to what he did and how he provided. But then we also know what he said, that he would come again. And we await that day. And while we await that day, we have real comfort for that wait. And that's what that's where we live now. That's where we are. Christianity is about the saving grace of God through Christ, which provides the only real comfort for living in a fallen world. And that last verse, verse 11, he has been doing since he came. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is a picture of the great good shepherd in how he leads his flock, even now. And how he will ultimately gather us on that final day. There is only one, only one who can offer true comfort, who can offer actual assurance and genuine consolation. The things we need in this sin-torn world so full of hardship and sorrow. And that person is the messenger of God, the servant of God, God himself, the great shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. This is the message that the world needs so desperately, that longing for. This is the message that we are called to faithfully proclaim. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Let's bow as I lead us in prayer. Oh Lord, how great is the pain of the world that lies in sin. How heavy is the burden of our sinful estate. And the miseries that attend us are ever-present this side of glory. People flounder about not knowing the source of true comfort. Oh Lord, make your people to be heralds, trumpeters of where this comfort can come from. Help us to be faithful witnesses to Christ in whatever way you give us an avenue to do so. Lord, maybe it's in the midst of mourning a tragedy that we have experienced. Maybe it's just the, the confession of faith in you and your, light, your son's life and resurrection for us. Maybe that's it. But give us a zeal, 
Help us to fear not. Help us to point our labored fellow human beings to the only place they can find comfort, true comfort, Christ himself. And may you be glorified. May this be for your, may our comfort be for your glory. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let us together respond as we sing a song about God's care for us as our shepherd. 599, let's stand and sing verse 1 and verse 2 as the elders come to prepare the table.